0: When it comes to talking about the most important American rock bands, a lot of people will immediately mention bands like the Velvet Underground, the Stooges, and the Ramones. Perhaps they'll mention the Beach Boys or the Doors. And sometimes you'll hear, in very much the same breath, a band known as the MC5. But what do you really know about the MC5, and why are they so important? How did this band from Detroit leave such a footprint of influence after only releasing three albums, two of which barely sold any copies, And the other album was banned from one of the biggest retail stores in America. And yet, people today still talk about the MC5 with great reverence and great relevance, more than 50 years after it was released. We're going to talk about that, because I'm giving you a testimonial. Today, we're going to talk about the MC5 and their 1969 debut album, Kick Out the Jams, from Baxi's enormous record collection on Baxi's Musical Podcast. Rexy's musical podcast. So, what is it about the MC5 that makes them so important? In order to understand it, you have to go back and take a look at what was happening from as far back as 1964. This is one year after the Kennedy assassination, same year the Civil Rights Act was enacted. It was also a year where the U.S. involvement in Vietnam was starting to escalate. In other words, there was trouble brewing in the United States, and the music of the time had not yet completely caught up with those times. The Beatles were just arriving in the U.S., still singing love songs. And in certain areas like Detroit, where racial and economic tensions were high, some kids were waiting for something major to break loose. And among those kids were two teenagers named Wayne Kramer and Fred Sonic Smith. Each of these kids had a band, the Vibratones and the Bounty Hunters. Now, these two bands shared a few things in common. Both Fred and Wayne were fans of rhythm and blues and early rock and roll and what would now be called garage rock. But they were also fans of that music being played really, really fast and very, very loud. The two bands also shared another common problem. They each had members who went off to college. Others chose to find jobs instead. With the two bands in shambles, Wayne Kramer and Fred Smith decided they would form a band together and find guys who were not so interested in getting an education or working for a living. They wanted to rock out, loudly. Instead, they retooled the Bounty Hunters when Fred Smith switched from guitar to bass, adding drummer Leo Leduc and another guitar player in Billy Vargo. Soon, LeDuc would be replaced by Dennis Thompson and Billy Vargo would be replaced by Michael Davis. Suddenly, the Bounty Hunters were a band with some level of commitment and even achieved a local following throughout the city of Detroit. What the band didn't have was a manager, and that's when they met Rob Derminer. Derminer was a few years older than Kramer and Smith, but he was also very much into the budding counterculture of the mid-60s. He was also very political and deeply involved in left-wing causes that would eventually catch fire later in the decade with the hippies and flower power. But not just yet. At this point, Derminer wanted to manage the band. But then he also kind of wanted to play the bass, too. What they really wanted was for him to become the lead singer. And so to pay homage to John Coltrane's piano player, McCoy Tyner, Rob changed his name to Rob Tyner. Now, Rob Tyner wasn't exactly your good-looking Robert Plant-style lead singer. He was a little overweight, had glasses, had an enormous head of bushy hair. But yet, the dude could wail with every performance feeling like some sort of religious revival on steroids. And it was Rob Tyner who decided that the Bounty Hunters, while a pretty good name, they needed something else. And so Tyner was the one who suggested that they embrace their roots and call themselves the Motor City Five, which, of course, was cut down even further to just the MC Five. From that point forward, the MC Five used their sheer power of the music and Tyner's aggressive stage presence to blow their home audiences away. Soon they were playing before standing room only crowds of a thousand people or more. Their music was beginning to strike a real chord with people. And in 1966, the MC5 released their first single on AMG Records, a cover of I Can Only Give You Everything by Van Morrison and his band Them. And the B-side was an original entitled One of the Guys. The single was enough to get the MC5 invited on tour with Janis Joplin and her band Big Brother and the Holding Company. That tour finished with the audiences demanding that the MC5 perform multiple encores every night. And that sort of thing doesn't sit very well when the headlining act is ready and ready to go on, even when that person happens to be Janis Joplin. And that's when they were asked to leave the tour. They then went on tour with Cream, and much like the way they bulldozed their way through those shows with Big Brother and The Holding Company, the same was true for their shows on this tour as well well, you can't just blow Janis Joplin and Eric Clapton off the stage in the prime of their careers and not have people take notice. And the most important person to take that notice was Danny Fields of Elektra Records. Now, Danny Fields is a highly important figure as he would later go on to manage the Ramones, but he would also work with the Doors and the Velvet Underground. But on this night in 1968, Danny Fields would travel to Ann Arbor, Michigan to check out the MC5. And as the story goes, Fields signed the band that night to a contract. He then asked the band if there were anyone else like these guys, and according to legend, the MC5 told him to take a look at their friends from Ann Arbor, Michigan, Iggy Pop and the Stooges. He did, and within one single trip, Danny Fields would sign the first two bands ever signed to Elektra Records, arguably two of the most important bands in history. Remember, it's 1968. Vietnam is in full swing. Race riots are happening all over America, and the band's political leanings were becoming influenced by the counterculture of the time. In a way, the band were becoming much more radicalized and following their footsteps of their new manager, activist John Sinclair. John Sinclair was an American poet who founded an anti-racism counterpart to the Black Panther Party known as the White Panther Party. It was under Sinclair's management that he insisted that their first record be a live album where they could express not only the power of their live performances, but also better serve the cause. To get them ready for that, Sinclair arranged for the MC5 to perform a free concert outside the Democratic National Convention in Chicago to protest the Vietnam War. The MC5 wanted being the only band to perform before police finally broke up the show due to the rioting. On October 30th and 31st, the MC5 taped two live performances at the Grand Ballroom in Detroit, the result of which would become their first album entitled Kick Out the Jams. Now, if you've never heard Kick Out the Jams, it starts off in a pretty unorthodox way with a cover version of Mary John Wilkins and Fred Birch's song, called Ramblin' Rose, originally recorded by Jerry Lee Lewis in 1961. Not only that, but Rob Tyner takes the backup vocal and a powerful set it was sung by Wayne Kramer, and that kicks things off. Then things get a little dicey, because the most controversial part of the album isn't the title track of the record. It's Rob Tyner's onstage introduction where he says, and I quote, kick out the jams, motherfuckers. Now, by today's standards, the word doesn't quite have the same shock value that it did back in the 1960s, even though people were using that word in everyday conversation all across America. But if you use it on stage, record it, and then attempt to release it to the general public, you could expect swift repercussions. Four years earlier, Lenny Bruce was arrested and convicted and put in jail for using the same exact word in his comedy act. So using it to introduce your best song, the very song you were hoping to put out as a single, was no less shocking in 1968 as it was in 1964. And if you put that word in the hands of radicalized hippies, then you're just asking for problems. And those problems begin with the Hudson's department store. In 1968, Hudson's department store, which was based in Detroit, claimed to be the second largest department store in square footage behind Macy's. In other words, Hudson's was kind of a big deal but it was a family-run business for much of the 1960s, so when copies of the MC5's Kick Out the Jams were being stocked on their shelves, they were not immediately aware that the album contained the word motherfucker. Once this was found out, Hudson's decided to remove the album from the shelves, even though the album had already sold more than 100,000 copies nationwide, causing it to peak on the Billboard charts at number 35. Nevertheless, because they felt the album was obscene, Hudson's pulled the record. Several months later, John Sinclair was busted for purchasing a couple of joints from two female undercover police officers. He would then spend the next 10 years in prison for possession. Now, you might recall seeing the film Woodstock, in which activist Abby Hoffman jumps on stage and talks about John Sinclair's incarceration, at which point Pete Townsend of The Who kicked Hoffman off the stage. That's why. And because he was in prison, the band decided to separate themselves from John Sinclair. But it was too late, because things would only get more complicated. It was at this point that Hudson's went back on the attack and then removed every Electra Records from their stores. All of them, like The Doors, The Stooges, Judy Collins, David Gates, and Bread, all of it, to strike back at Hudson's, the band page for a full-page ad in an underground magazine known as The Fifth Estate. In the ad, it states, quote, kick out the jams, motherfuckers, and if the door in the store won't sell you the record on Electra Records, fuck Hudson's. Now, common marketing practices would have you believe that this sort of heavy-handed response advertising can sometimes blow up in your face. And while people are still talking about this full-page ad today, Electro Records president Jack Holtzman was forced to drop the MC5 from their label. Ironically, Jefferson Airplane recorded the song We Can Be Together for their album Volunteers in the very same year. That song included the same word, and yet there was no retail boycott, and RCA Records released it completely uncensored. The band would eventually sign with Atlantic Records and release two more albums, both of which were recorded in the studio. 1970's Back in the USA, which was produced by John Landau, who would later work with Bruce Springsteen, and 1971's High Times. Both of these records sold very badly as the power of the band failed to translate into the studio. The band then dissolved from a combination of bad sales, exhaustion, and drug addiction. The band officially fell apart the following year during a reunion show where Wayne Kramer walked off the stage during a poorly attended concert at the Grand Ballroom, the very room that they recorded kick out the jams. In 1991, Rob Tyner died of a heart attack at the age of 46. Three years later, Fred Sonic Smith died of a heart attack at the age of 45. By that point, he had been married to legendary singer Patti Smith. And in 2005, the three surviving members of the MC5 reunited for a series of shows with Handsome Dick Manitoba from the Dictators as their lead singer. This version of the band lasted until 2012 when bass player Michael Davis died of lyric failure at the age of 68. So what made the MC5 so damn influential? This was a band whose raw power transcended every other band in America at the time. It's 1968. Other than the Stooges, there was nobody playing like the MC5. And that record, with all of its aggressiveness and unapologetic points of view, would go on to influence hard rock, punk, metal, and several other genres of music as well long before some of those genres even existed. Without the MC5, there would be no Ramones, no such thing as the Sex Pistols or the Clash or Guns and Roses or Motorhead or the Damned or the White Stripes or Rage Against the Machine. It's all in there. In fact, the entire punk explosion could easily be traced to the MC5. Without them, perhaps Danny Fields never sees Iggy Pop in the Stooges. Perhaps David Bowie never gets a chance to meet Iggy Pop. This was the band that blew cream off the stage, preceded Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath, and has been continuing to inspire musicians for the next 50 years. But it's also important to point out that Kick Out the Jams isn't only notable for using an offensive word that later pissed off a large retailer. This was a relentless album which refuses to let up and demands to be played loudly whether it be their extended version of John Lee Hooker's Motor City is Burning or Borderline or Rocket Reducer number 62, Kick Out the Jams was, in fact, a motherfucker all by itself. The music even outlasted Hudson's, which went out of business more than 23 years ago. The MC5 is timeless, and that's why it's today's selection on Baxi's enormous record collection on Baxi's musical podcast. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed Baxi's enormous record collection, feel free to share it, like it, and pass it around to all your friends. You can email me at baxrock 102com I'd love to hear what you think. Thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.